You can turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, and I'll be reading beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for what you have revealed here. And God, we just look that to you that you would by your spirit um, work in us that our hearts and minds would be illumined to what you have said and to yourself and that we would have understanding and Give our amen, God, to what you want to to say and to do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're still in the introduction here to Romans. and, um, And Paul, in this brief section of Scripture, is establishing his heart for the Roman people, and I think for people in general, but more importantly, his heart for... Christ and for the gospel. And you recall that, that the city of Rome is not just the political center of the world, it's also the religious center of the world. The modern equivalent for us might be Mecca, which is both the political and religious center for Islam. So this is not just a political power base, it is a religious center. And the Roman people were worshiping the emperor. They felt that they had to, in fact, even upon penalty of death. And so to have a church here in Rome is no insignificant thing. And to know that when Paul writes this in the the mid-50s A.D., within eight years, in 64 A.D., you recall that the the Roman historian um, Tacitus is saying there was a multitude of Christians in this city. Most of the emperors were, were known for their persecution of both Jews and Christians. During the time that Paul wrote Romans, he wrote it from probably the city of Corinth. And we know that, that Priscilla and Aquila, Jewish Christians, had already been, been forced out of Rome by the persecution that the emperor Claudia had instigated. And then it'll calm down a little bit. People, Christians, will start to gravitate back to the city. And then Nero will have his persecution in 64 AD. And then after him, there'll be Domitian. So this has been a city of bloodshed for Christians. Many multitudes of Christians and Jews have died at the hands of the Romans because they don't worship the emperor. 
They don't worship the same God. And they felt that chaos would come upon the empire if there were people who weren't um, in line with their worldview, with their mindset, that the emperor had to be worshipped as a god. And so in that context, Paul's saying, man, I can't wait to get to Rome. <laughs> you go, what's wrong with this guy? He's, he's, I can't wait to get to Mecca and preach Christ. You go, does he have a death wish? What is wrong with the guy? Because he's saying, I want to come to Rome, a place of persecution, and I want to preach Christ. I am looking forward to coming there and proclaiming the gospel. But first he says, I want you to know how thankful I am to Christ for you all because your faith, verse 8, is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Again and again in Paul's letters, if there's one point that he says makes me thankful for people, it is their faith in Jesus Christ. Not their giving, though he was grateful for that at times. Not for maybe just how well they were getting along with each other, though he encouraged that and sought that. But the number one thing that Paul looked for in people was their faith in Christ. And he says, your faith is such that it is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Which stands to reason. They're in a place of persecution. They're in the, in the city of Rome. And they are believing, trusting in Christ, and that witness, that testimony is going out throughout the whole world. But it made me think, and I, what exactly would people be testifying of us, of any church? What should be the witness that goes out from a church if there is a testimony of faith? What does that faith look like? And there are things that Paul is saying here in Romans that give us hints of what what, what he commends as being acts of faith and things that are, are mentioned in other, other epistles which I think that we could look at and say this, these are indications that a person is living his faith, that he is trusting in Christ and living out that trust. One is that we are hoping in Christ and not in ourselves. When a people are trusting Christ and a testimony of faith is going out, and, I, and the, one of the reasons I just should pause, that I, that I think this is so important, because we, as I've been with the, set, with the students at His Hill, starting looking at, at Corinthians again, there's a very strong passage there at the beginning of Corinthians, chapter 3, where Paul says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. And we were looking at that, and that doesn't have anything to do with taking one's life. It's not about suicide. It's about a person who is living according to the flesh, so influencing a church that the church is no longer functioning as a spiritual entity, but it's functioning just as any other world entity. There's not a dime's difference between a church and a corporation, then that church is no longer an institution of faith. It is no longer a spiritual entity. And it happens because of a few people who are in positions of influence who will move a church toward doing the common sense thing, toward doing what is works, what is practical. And we're moving a church toward what is natural, Paul says, rather than toward what is spiritual. Where we give lip service to Christ being the head of the church, but in fact he's not functioning actively as the head, as the leader of the church. Then the church is just another natural entity. And so Paul says that's not the case for the Roman church here. They are a people of faith. They are known, they have a testimony of trusting Christ. 
And one of the first things that Paul always comes back to is, you are hoping in Him, not in yourself. Your trust, your confidence is not in you, not in yourselves, but in Christ. God is being honored as God. He's going to say, in, in contrast, later on in this chapter, when people move away from God, God ceases to be honored as God. People stop giving thanks to God. And so a church that is living in faith, that a, that a true um, relationship with Christ is being portrayed, will be a church that is thankful, a church that is honoring God as God. They will be a church that is joyful, and they're participating in the joy of Christ and taking joy in Christ. They are people, a church, that are counting the cost of following Christ and count that cost to be worthy. Like Moses, when he, when he left Egypt, and Hebrews 11 says that he considered the reproaches of Christ to be greater wealth than the riches of Egypt. Then a church says it's better to walk with God and to be persecuted than to become like the world so that, we, so that life can be easy. And these people here in Rome were willing to count the cost of being in a political and religious situation that was alien to them and still live out their faith knowing that it would cost them. They were obedient in their faith. They were people who were living in a living, dynamic relationship with Christ. And the word was going out. This is not just confessional, but this is reality. It is the basis of their life. A people of faith. And Paul says, I'm encouraged and I'm blessed and I'm praying for you constantly. Verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I want to be with you. I'm praying for you constantly. Paul's desire was to be with these people. What did he want to do when he got there? Verse 11. For I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Now, spiritual gift. And Paul says, when I come, I want to impart some kind of spiritual gift to you. So we immediately think of things like tongues, prophecy, healings, administration, helps, mercy, all the different kind of gifts that are mentioned, some mentioned in Romans, some mentioned in 1 Corinthians, in saying Paul wants to come and bless these people by dispensing gifts upon them. I don't think so. And the, now it's translated gift because every time the translators come up with this Greek word charis, they don't know what to do with it. So you've got to translate it one of two ways, either grace or gift. But both are the same. Grace and gift have the same Greek word, charis. Now, the reason I don't think Paul is saying, I can't wait to get to you so that I can give you some kind of spiritual gift like tongues or prophecy or miracles or helps or administration or teaching or pastoring or whatever is because 1 Corinthians 12 says, it is the Spirit who gives the gifts. The Spirit determines who will get which gift. Men don't make that determination. The Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit gives us the gift that He's going to give us when we get Him. And that's at birth. When we are born again by the Spirit of God, 
We receive God's Spirit in us, and the spiritual gift is merely a manifestation of Himself. He is making Himself known in our lives in a particular way. And so when you get the Holy Spirit, which is at new birth, you get the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Not at some point later on after you become a Christian, but when you receive the Spirit. It's when you're going to receive the manifestation of the Spirit, which is a spiritual gift. And so I think the better translation here would have been, when I come to you, one of the things I want to do is to grace you. I want to bring grace into your lives. I don't want to come and just take from you. I want to bless you. I want to grace you. So that after I've been with you, you go, man, we've been refreshed. We've been built up. We've been encouraged. And that is a ministry that any and every Christian can have in the lives of other Christians. That is not an apostolic ministry. That is a Christian ministry. That we ought to be able to say to one another, man, I'd love to come over to your house and grace you. But then you think, well, that still just seems a little pompous. You know, like the Pope's arriving. And, well, and it's almost like Paul thinks that too. Because you almost see him backing up and he says, don't let me get, give you the wrong idea here. Because the next verse, he goes, that is, and so he's explaining himself a little more, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith. Both yours and mine, so it's not just a one-way street. Paul's not saying, I just want to come and just bless you and wave my hand over you and just say, you know, some spiritual words and then walk away. That's not what he's talking about, relationship. And he says, I want to give to you and grace you. And by the way, I'm expecting the same thing from you. Because this is how a Christian community works. We grace each other. We bless each other. We give grace like no one else can. Because this is the distinctive of the Christian faith. Grace. And we, as we have received grace, can give grace. And it's not just one way. It's not just for the, you know, the, the great apostle to come and bestow grace. But he's saying, I want to receive from you just as I desire to give to you. So there's nothing wrong with having a heart that wants to give. It's not pompous. But it's saying, I have nothing that I haven't received. And everything I've received is it's, it's so that God might bless others through me. And so, man, I want to come. And I want to, be a, I want to be a blessing. I want to be a giver of grace. Who doesn't want that? I mean, isn't, isn't that our heart's desire? Nobody wants to, you know, at, you know at maybe you go out and visit a friend, you stayed with them, you know, for longer than the three days. You know, three days is supposed to be the max because, you know, you heard, you know, friends and, and fish are the same. After three days, they begin to stink. And, uh, and, so, you didn't, and so, you know, you know, but you stayed longer than three days and, you're, and your whole worry is, man, they're, you know, they're going to start to resent my presence. Well, whether it's three days or three weeks, that we'd be able to leave and to know that we left with a good smell behind. And that we haven't worn out our welcome. Because grace has been given. That's what we desire. Reminds me of when my dad used to come and visit me in seminary. Which meant I got to sleep on the floor. And he got in my bed there in the dorm. And sometimes it seemed like a long time. 
But Paul's just saying, it's, it's all of our heart. We don't want to just be takers. We want to be givers. We want to be people who can come into a presence and leave it better. Giving grace. I, I remember in my college days, and, and um, when I was, I was um, in charge of, of a floor one year, and, um, and man, you know, everybody grouses. You know, just, you know, we're supposed to be thankful, but Christians complain a lot. And, 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 you know, and the students would complain about this and that and stuff, you know, and it was, you know, that's my tendency as well. And, I, and, I, and, and sometimes you see something best in yourself when you see it in somebody else, and so I'm, I, I became very aware of it. And I'm going, God, I don't, I don't want to just participate in this. And yet I don't want to just, 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 you know, be, you know, ragging on the guys every time they're negative either. And, and I just remember just, just standing among a group of guys a couple different times and the ta- conversation was negative and, and I'm just in my heart just praying and saying, you know, didn't say any word, nothing, didn't criticize them about being critical. You know, that didn't work. And I, and I, but I just said, you know, at the, at, God, just give me the words. And at the, when it just became the right timing, just inserting something positive, uplifting. Not trying to be teaching or condemning or anything, just, just an influence, subtle influence. And amazing how the whole conversation began to change. And none of those guys didn't even realize who did it or what it was due to. But it was just a, just a little ray of light. Just some grace that came into the situation. Paul says, let all of your speech be seasoned, as it were, with grace. And man, you start to just try to sprinkle a little grace here and there. It's barbecuing chicken yesterday and a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, a whole lot of Worcestershire. And, you know, and just but let it be seasoned. Just, just give grace in your speech, in your behavior. And it, 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 sometimes it has to be a conscious decision on our part. But thank the Lord sometimes when it's not even conscious. And people are receiving grace unconsciously. Bonhoeffer spoke about that when he was a prisoner of war in the Nazi prison war camps and ended up um, being hung just prior to um, the fall of, of the Third Reich. And, and, and as he was a prisoner of war and suffering all kinds of atrocities and felt like he was giving nothing, that he, that he was beyond able to give. And he had, people would come up to him and say, what's the difference about your life? We see something different in you. There's a light that's different about you. And he recognized that the Lord was manifesting himself and giving grace and people were encouraged and their hope was stimulated by a man who felt really like nothing was happening through him. He felt like he was just barely existing in that concentration camp. And yet God was giving grace to the lives of the other prisoners around him. It's the way that God wants to work. But it's not, as I said, just one way. Through one, you know, high and, and exalted spiritual leader who comes in and blesses. But again, look at verse 12. He says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It's faith that gives grace. And, and sometimes it's those guys that, that, that are recognized that need to be encouraged the most, that need to have their faith strengthened. And it, it strengthens their faith 
to have others speaking of faith, speaking of Christ, trusting Christ. And, and I just so appreciate this because there's been different times in my life where, when I've realized, you know, I am, re, I, am, I am doing nothing but receiving from this particular individual. What can I do for him? How can I give grace to him? Lord, use me to bless his life. I think about that with the years that I used to meet with Russell Kelfer for lunch. And, and y'all, some of y'all know Russell. that was part of Wayside Chapel in San Antonio. And there's a number of men that he would meet with on occasion. And, and, and he would spend the whole time just asking about me and Patsy and the kids. And, and just so intimately involved with my life and, and never saying anything about himself. And there are times I was just driving him back to comfort. And I'd realize, you know, I never asked him about him. And I, and, I, and I began to realize that he is giving so much to me, and yet he's receiving virtually nothing from me. And I recall when I did my pastoral internship in North Carolina, and, and the evaluation the pastor gave to me was um, um, essentially that Charlie's a great guy, and we really appreciate the ministry that he had here in the church this summer, but um, I received no encouragement from Charlie. And that stung. And I remember having to sit down before my, my evaluator at seminary. And he was looking at the evaluation, and, and he read that part. And I go, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just disappointed that, that I didn't recognize his need. And, and I didn't, you know, he's the pastor of the church, and I'm just an intern, just a dumb seminary guy. You know, what do I know? He needed encouragement, and he wasn't receiving any from me. And I remember my evaluator said, well, you weren't there to encourage him. And I knew that wasn't right. We are in each other's lives to encourage each other. And we all need it. And age doesn't matter. Position doesn't matter. And so you you see Paul on one hand saying, I want to come and bless you. But then you see him pulling back and saying, don't just think that I'm coming in from on high. I need to be blessed by you as well. I need to receive faith. I need to have my faith encouraged. And I know you people have something to offer me. So he wanted to receive, and he wanted to give. It's both. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some spiritual fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I've wanted to come to you for the longest time, Paul's saying. And I haven't been able to. God just hasn't allowed it. And sometimes Paul mentioned and he said Satan has prevented something. Here he's not giving the indication that it's Satan that's preventing it. It's just that God hasn't allowed it as, as much as he wants to go there. But, it's, but Paul recognizes he needs to tell him that. I've wanted to come, but I haven't been able to. But then again, why? So that I can, can obtain fruit among you. And we think about fruit, and we think about him giving the gospel, we think about people getting saved. And in fact, most of the commentaries I looked at said, yeah, Paul wanted to go to Rome and see people get saved. And I'm sure he did. But he's not talking about here, it would seem, that the city of Rome, but he's saying, I want to come to you, the church in Rome. Well, they're already saved. And I think that what Paul, he's already got... It's always on the front of his mind that the gospel is more than just seeing people get saved. That's just the beginning. 
And, and if there's any book in the Bible that tells us that the gospel is about a life-living relationship with Christ who lives, this is the book. He's going to spend three chapters at least, Romans 6, 7, and 8, speaking about what it looks like to yield your life over to Christ and to live according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. And this is the gospel. This is not an addendum to the gospel. This is not an added some kind, you know, amendment that we put on to the gospel. This is the gospel. It's not just receive Christ and when you die you get to go to heaven. But it's a relationship that, com- that comes together where Christ is in you and you are in Christ and it impacts life now. And so that is a kind of fruit that we can see that God brings even through the lives of Christians. You can minister among Christians and truly preach Christ, truly preach the gospel, and have fruit come out of that ministry among Christians. And it's not just, you know, moving on. Okay, they've received Christ, now let's go find somebody else where we can get more fruit. But fruit among Christians, as Christians come into a deeper understanding of of what it means to walk with Christ and to abide in Christ. And then he begins a series here of, of of three statements that explain why all this desire. I desire to come to you. I pray for you constantly. I want to receive fruit among you. Three things that are controlling Paul. Verse 14, I am under obligation. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. And verse 16, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. First in verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the fools. Under obligation. Some of your translations probably put, I am indebted or I am a debtor to. Now the reason that the New American Standard has chosen obligation rather than debt is because when we think of of debt, we think I owe money to somebody. I borrowed something from somebody and now I need to pay it back. And Paul's not, that's not the idea that he has in mind. He hasn't borrowed anything from the Gentiles. But there is something that he does owe to the Gentiles. And it is, an, it is a debt or is an obligation that has nothing to do with what he has received from them that he needs to give back. But this is the kind of obligation or debt that is because of what you have received that belongs to another. And the best example I've heard of this is like if you were, have been put, been named as the executor of someone else's will or estate. As the executor, that person who died, they're, they're, what they've left as an inheritance isn't yours. But you have an obligation to dispense, to, to execute that will according to the wishes of the one who wrote the will. So you are under obligation. And that's what Paul is saying. That God has saved me. And He hasn't saved me simply for me. But having been saved, I now have an obligation to all those who aren't saved to dispense what has been put into my custody at this time. And that is, again, true for every Christian. And and I don't know that... Most of us, I know I don't, really go through life sensing the weight of this. If it were money, then I would. Somebody's given me, you know, a million dollars that belongs to somebody else, and I'm the executor of the estate. I wouldn't rest until I've got the thing done the way it's supposed to be done. But it's more than money. 
It's the gospel. It's Christ. And we have been saved that we might have a ministry of dispensing and executing what has been placed into our custody for the sake of others. Now, for Paul in particular, that especially meant Gentiles. And so he says, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. When you've loved them in that part of that group. And I think that's kind of funny. But here, in, the, in Paul's time, anybody that was not of the um, cultured class, where they would trace their roots back to the Greeks. See, the Greeks would look down their noses, their Roman noses, at everyone else and say they are barbarian. Because they're not part of the social class of the wealthy, the entitled, the, the educated, the philosopher class. And the Greeks were known for their philosophy. They were, they were smart people. And there's no doubt about it. Everybody else were barbarians in comparison. And so Paul says, I want to preach to them all. Doesn't matter to me. Both to the wise and to the foolish. And then, verse 15, I am eager. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager because he knows what the gospel is and what it can do. But also because he knows Rome. And again, even though it's a place of persecution, a place where his life would be threatened, he goes, I can't wait to get there. What an opportunity. And then verse 16, I am not ashamed. So again, these three things are controlling Paul's heart, and I believe they're never, God never intended for them just to be characteristic of the eminent apostle Paul. They're to be characteristic of all of us. Under obligation, eager to preach the gospel, and not ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is. Not it was. Not sometimes. It is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes. Everyone. What is that gospel? It says that man's problem is not his hang-ups, not his economic situation. Man's biggest problem is his sin. And as hard as it is to recognize it and to admit it, and I know because we all have been so saturated by the um, psychiatric type of, of environment that we've all grown up in, where everything is a, a phobia or it's a dysfunction um, and, and it's all labeled as being some kind of psychological problem and it's never labeled as sin. Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. And my problem is not just a psychological hang-up. My big problem is sin. And there's only one solution for my sin, and that is Jesus. That doesn't seem very knowledgeable, at least in the psychiatric community. And we've all 
drunk from that well. It just seems foolish. It doesn't seem erudite enough. Paul knew that. And it didn't hold him back. He was eager to give the simple gospel message among the intelligent, the wise, and among the foolish. And what was true then is still true today. Most of us have come to experience this personally. We know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You can hear the gospel maybe your whole life and never have come to know it as the power of God unto salvation. It takes the Spirit of God. And this is why we pray for one another, because we recognize that. A person can hear the gospel, know the gospel, repeat the gospel, I believe even, even see other people come to Christ as they share the gospel, and yet never have come to know the power of the gospel themselves. Never be saved. It takes the Spirit of God. No one is born again except by the Spirit of God. But you can try everything else that there is to offer as being the solution for your problems. And the Scriptures call it hewing out broken cisterns that do not hold water. I think that's Jeremiah, the first part of Jeremiah. I have these two things against you. You have hewn out cisterns which do not hold water. And you have not come to drink of the living fountain. The fountain of Christ. The gospel is the power of God. I tell you that sometimes I feel like, am I giving people enough? When I simply share, come to Christ. That's what Jesus said. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there were many people who, who heard that cry, many people, and never came. They thought it seemed silly. This man says, come to him, and he can lift my burden, and he can give me rest. Drink, I have a water which you know nothing of, and if you drink of this water, you shall never thirst again. He said to the woman at the well, and she disdained him initially. <laughs> we don't even have anything to draw from. But he persisted. And she was curious. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And again, I believe that that belief, because of the tense that he's using, is a present continuous belief. It's not just believing once and having the assurance that we get to go to heaven when we die. But he wants the gospel to be the power of God for salvation in each of our lives daily, continuously. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I need you today. I've been, I was sharing with somebody this week that I was having lunch with and, you know, and, and we were just talking and I was just, just just sharing some things. And, and I told him, I said, you know, I, I read a, a, at least a chapter of Proverbs most days. Other scripture as well, but, but I like to read a chapter of Proverbs most days. Done that for a long time. But I don't always like Proverbs. In fact, a lot of times I don't like Proverbs. Because Proverbs has a lot to say about being a fool. 
and I read those verses, and, and, my, and in my self-justification, the first thing I want to say is, well, that's, you know, God, I don't want to be like that. You know, I, I realize I, I have that tendency, is how I want to call it. And God says, this is no tendency. This is you. You are a fool. The fool is quick to get angry. The, the fool's vexation is known at once. I'm a fool. Proverbs tells me I'm a fool. And for that reason, I don't always like reading Proverbs. God, why would you have me read a book like this? And any chapter you read, and there's 31 of them, they're going to tell you you're a fool. 31 times every day of the month. God, why are you doing that? And I've come to realize it's because it's not God wants to just rub my face in it, but he wants me to remember every day that Jesus is my wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. And that I will not draw from Jesus as my wisdom if I think I just have a tendency toward being a fool. But if I know I am a fool, then I know I need the power of God today. I need Jesus. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so I read those chapters, and more and more I'm crying out, Oh Jesus, today save me. Today be my wisdom. And I find daily that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Does God have a priority for the Jewish people today? Is, are they his priority for being saved? Many people would say, yes, I don't have any problem with that. But Paul's at least saying that we need to recognize that salvation has come from the Jews. Jesus said that when he spoke to the woman at the well. Salvation comes from the Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. And so we recognize that there is, God has a priority for the Jewish people. And it's not that that is all God's doing today. But God has made a covenant, more than one, with the Jewish people. And he is going to fulfill those. And it is still very much God's heart for Jewish people to be saved. But he doesn't desire, remember, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so then Paul sees that the heart of God is for all to hear and to be saved. It is in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, that the righteousness of God is revealed, made manifest, Worked out in life the righteousness of God from faith to faith. I just think he means just throughout life. From beginning to end, it's all about faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A loose quote from the book of Habakkuk where that verse occurs. And it's going to be quoted again in Galatians and in Hebrews. So it's a very dominant theme throughout the New Testament. And essentially all that Paul is saying is, you want a righteous life? 
In fact, more basic than that, you want life? It is by faith. As you trust Christ, you will have life because you will be given the very righteousness of God. It is imputed to you positionally where you are justified and you are reconciled to God. And it becomes part of you. It begins to be imparted to you as you walk with Him. And begin to experience His sanctifying work. We want righteousness. We want life. And it will only be given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. No shortcuts. Wrapping this up. He's he's going to introduce in verse 18 the topic of the wrath of God. We're not going to go there this morning because we're done. But I want you to think about this. There is a wrath of God that man must face. Now I said earlier that sin is my biggest problem. That's not quite accurate. But it is because of sin that I've got a problem. And it's not because of what sin does to me and does to you. But it's because there is a righteous and holy God that we must all stand before. And that's why my sin's a problem. Because there's a holy God. And God is not only a God of love and mercy and grace. He is a God of wrath. And even if he is not concerned, even if if I am not concerned with my sin and its consequences, I should be concerned about facing God. And I realize more again, as the older I get, that sometimes, you know, it's like talking to wood, talking to a wall, to try and talk somebody out of their sin because of what it is doing to them. You've had that experience. You're wasting your time. Paul spends very little time trying to reason people out of their sin because of what it's doing. But he will talk about there is a holy God who is a God of wrath. And he hates sin. And you may not be concerned about your sin, but God is. And you will have to stand before him. The good news is, he makes us righteous by the power of the gospel. So he's going to start talking about wrath, but he doesn't want us to forget what he's just said. Righteousness and life come through faith in Jesus Christ. And by the power of God, which is made manifest in the gospel, we do not have to face the wrath of God. And now you begin to understand why Paul says, I am under obligation, and I am eager, and I am not ashamed. Because there is a God of wrath, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let me close this in prayer.